exiting this stage, would you turn to John chapter 2, please? John chapter 2, the fourth gospel in the New Testament. John chapter 2, and we will start in verse 12. Give you a second just to find that there as we read the scripture. John 2 and verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his own body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Our next conversation we have here, as it's a little bit of a different occasion, last week we spoke of a very enjoyable a joyous celebration where Jesus is with his disciples and he's been invited to this wedding and uh, we're able to see him very comfortable in a kind of a normal context and how he responded and how much he cared and he met the needs. Um, I did want to just make a comment about last week's message that at some point in the future it would probably be good for me to expound a little bit more on just, you know, the cultural context of the wine there and, and, and just the use of alcohol. I know I, I only was able to address a little bit. In fact, I think it was maybe 10 or 12 minutes as far as the whole message was concerned. It wasn't meant to be the focus, but I did want to highlight the context of it. But I did have a very helpful conversation with someone this week that I thought, you know what, it probably would have been good to maybe explain a little bit more. And so hopefully in the future I'll be able to do that. But I'm so thankful to be part of a church that uh, we don't always agree on everything, and that's fine. Uh, We started the year uh, looking at the idea of unity the first Sunday in January, and and I did that very purposely to really set the tone for our year as we look uh, through the conversations of Jesus, because there's no doubt things that will come up in in these texts that will show that we don't all agree on every point of the Christian life. In fact, uniformity is not what we're looking for. We're looking for unity, and that's a gift by the Spirit. And so we're so thankful that it's a gift, and it's our 
responsibility to be diligent to preserve it. And so I'm so thankful to be a part of a church who is uh, committed to preserving the unity and, and really focusing on the things in Scripture that God has for us. But as far as this conversation is concerned, it's found here in John. And uh, the other three Gospels actually share an event similar to this, and some conclude it's all the same event. Uh, some would then, some scholars would say it's actually two events. Um, the, the answers for some of those, I, I don't think it necessarily matters particularly. Um, we have it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry here in John. The other three Gospels put it in the Passover week right before he uh, went to the cross. But similar occasions where Jesus comes in uh, and he is seeing what is happening in the temple. And it's, uh, it's a problem for, what, for him and what he sees. And, and really in this occasion here, at the beginning of his ministry, he is establishing his authority as the one who can speak on these matters of worship. He is the temple, as he refers to himself here in this passage. And so he has every right to be able to look at what's happening and what man has done in this particular situation. And, and just by a, a note here, this is probably what sparked the opposition to Jesus from this point on, where the high priests and those in authority were not very happy with him, and, and then it eventually, as we know, led to his death. But this occasion where Jesus was just actually going about his everyday life in the Jewish culture, as last week, it was a wedding normal, everyday, cultural event. The Passover was very much part of the Jewish um, culture. It was something that was celebrated once a year. It was to commemorate the uh, deliverance of God's people from Egypt when God displayed his glory in such a massive way. And so every year there would be a feast in Jerusalem to commemorate this and there were three times a year that, that the males were required to come to Jerusalem if they were able to. Feast of Passover, Feast at the Pentecost, and then uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And so it was something that was a big moment in the life of a Jewish person. If they were physically able, they were required to make the pilgrimage or journey, no matter where they were in the land of Israel, they would be able to come to Jerusalem during the, this particular time. And during this time of Passover, it's said that, that the city of Jerusalem could swell to up to three million people. So we're talking masses of people who have come from all over the land of Israel to be able to come to worship to meet their God. Now, with that amount of people, and if you're familiar at all, you may not be, and I totally understand that, but the, the sacrificial system up until this point was pretty rigid. And so you had to bring sacrifices to be able to come and, and accomplish what uh, you were asked to do as far as bringing your um, offerings to the Lord so that you could be forgiven of your sins. There was an elaborate system that had evolved through the years. Um, and, and so we have this occasion where you have a massive amount of people needing certain things to be able to accomplish what uh, they were supposed to do. Part of the responsibility for all of the males over 20 years of age was that they had to pay a tax, and it had to be done in Jewish coins. So imagine the different places and currency that were represented when all these people ascended to Jerusalem, 
and you have the need for uh, money to be exchanged and, and the right currency to be given. Now, a lot, again, this was an elaborate system that had evolved through the years. I'm just trying to explain what's happening here in this moment. Well, whenever you have opportunity, uh, the depravity of man kicks in and, and men try to capitalize on things that happen. You take any event that happens in culture, and, and within hours, what do you have? You have t-shirts, you have all kinds of things that, that are really people's way to capitalize on a moment in history, a moment in culture, to be able to make some money. And so here you have what is happening. You have a, a, a number of people, merchants, who have come with their, their animals to be able to sell so that people could accomplish the purpose for why they are there. Also, you have money changers who are there to provide the service of really giving them the Jewish coin that they needed to be able to pay their tax. Problem is, when there's greed and, and, and those kinds of things motivating people, what you know, could be a simple service like exchanging money could grow into a pretty lucrative business. And so there could be a lot of fees tacked on to because you have a captive audience, right? They're there. They have to pay the tax. They need the right coin. It's an opportunity. Also, they have to bring sacrifices. Most people probably did not bring their sacrifices traveling the long journey that it took, sometimes days to get to Jerusalem. And so there's an opportunity. So you have an occasion with all of these people, and, and the temple here that is described is probably including all of the courtyards and things like that. You've been to the land of Israel, you realize how massive this place was, but you're also talking about three million people who are participating in, in these types of events. So when Jesus comes with his disciples, what he finds is basically chaos, chaos and business. People scurrying around, trying to get what they need, trying to exchange their money. You have the, the observation, Jesus knew exactly what was in the hearts of men. It tells us in this passage later that Jesus knows all things. He knows, so he knows what the motivation for the money changers are for being there. He knows what the motivation is for all those who are selling their product. And so with Jesus understanding the whole thing in real time, he comes up to the scene and he is angry. Now we know that Jesus was completely without sin from start to finish. So this was a righteous anger, and there is a, a difference. I think it's hard sometimes for us, from our perspective, to really understand where that line of righteous anger and, and, and sinful anger is. But for Jesus, no problem. He, he, he was fully in control at all time. He never violated any sinful things. And so he, as it talks about the prophecy there that is mentioned, zeal for my father's house would consume me. And Jesus is consumed with zeal. He is hot at what he sees. And so the conversation isn't like the one last week that we looked at with his mother, which was very kind and just a nice interchange. This one has a little bit different feel to it. And instead of starting with words... <laughs> He starts with a whip, because it tells us here in the text that he gathered together in verse 15, he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple. Now, I'm telling this was a massive structure, the temple. So we read it in like seconds and see what's going on. 
But what actually has happened here, imagine him driving out all of these people, all the merchants, including the animals. Then it says, says he literally goes to the money changers and he dumps out all of their coins. Now, I don't know how many money changers were there, but when you're talking about the masses of people that are probably, that probably reflects this event, Jesus was pretty stirred for quite a while. Now, he may have been saying some things along the way. He's literally throwing tables upside down. Now, it's hard for us to envision him this way. But remember my comments. He is perfectly right to do this. Because this is his house. The temple at this time was the place where God was to be met. This was for the presence of God. This was God's system that had been established in the Old Testament. Now man got their hands on it and messed it up in a huge way. But this is his right to be able to see the chaos, to be able to see the motivations of man's heart, to be able to capitalize on people who were there for right motives. They were there to worship. But the people who were taking advantage of them in this moment, Jesus was going to set the record straight, and he does. So I don't know how long it took him to take this whip and get everybody out of there and to dump out all the money I, I'm just imagine the, the chaos. I mean, when people drop money, you know, uh, it's like, whew, right? Imagine the coins are flying everywhere and Jesus is like, he's flipping tables. He is zealous for worship. He clearly has a strong desire of how it should be. And it should be with the right motivation and in the right way. And so the conversation starts with these actions and he follows it up with even, we have a little bit of an interchange. If you would go to verse 16, and to those who were selling the doves. So John records a little bit of his statements here. So I don't know if he didn't like birds. Sorry for all the birdie people out there. Um, but he, he goes to the people with the doves and he says to them, take these things away. So his first conversation words that, is, that are recorded at least here for us is like, get out of my house. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now understand, remember what I said. He knows all things. He knows why they're there selling their product. He knows their motivation. He knows that it's not right. He knows he's, these people are taking advantage of the pilgrims who are there for the right reasons. And he says, get out of my house. Now, I don't know how long this whole scene took place, but you can imagine those who are in authority, their response. I mean, you see Jesus hot and bothered and angry. No doubt the religious leaders who set up this system, or I guess God initially set it up, but they had definitely had their way of adding to it and creating a whole other context for which we find here in this moment. 
But I'm sure they are angry. Like, who is this guy? He just came in, one of an ordinary, you know, one of many ordinary people, and he's literally turned the place upside down. And, and he, they go to him in, in verse 18, and the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, we know the end of the story. We, we know, like, the whole revealed truth. So we can sit here today, Jesus had the right to do this, he knew all things, this is his house. Clearly, we get it. But in this moment, you have the religious leaders of the day basically seeing this, this person who has overtaken the thing, and, and they're like, no, 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 this is, I don't know who you think you are. Now, if you know the Old Testament, there, there is a passage in Deuteronomy that says when there's a new prophet that comes on the scene, he should have a sign to prove his message. So the religious leaders, obviously, they're the teachers of the Old Testament law. They understand when someone new comes onto the scene, they better have something to show for themselves as to what authority brings them to this moment. So they ask a question that would be very normal in this context. Someone's claiming to have authority over the religious uh, activity of the day. Okay, show us what you got to prove that you can actually do this. So this interchange is basically two authorities, Jesus, the authority, and man, the proposed authority of the day, really confronting one another. And the Jewish people in this context, would, the Jewish leaders would have a normal right to confront Jesus in this moment. And Jesus says to them something that they think is bizarre. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and three days I will raise it up. Now, first of all, this somewhat stranger has come into town and basically taken over in a way that, from their perspective, he has no right. And then when they go to talk to him about it, he's like, yeah, Destroy this temple, and I'll build it back in three days. Now, you can imagine, okay, just, I'm not trying to, to get compassion for the Jewish leaders, but you can imagine what they're thinking. This guy is crazy. In fact, the scripture tells us, I think it took 46 years to build that temple. They're thinking the actual physical temple. Jesus is referring to something else, himself. They're like, who is this guy? He's a nut job. And of course, we know that Jesus, according to the text, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. So again, we have a snapshot of a conversation that probably took a lot longer. He probably did speak to more than those selling the dove, although we have his one statement. But what Jesus is communicating in this moment, and he says, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. He says, this is my, this is my territory. This is my father's house. 
This is a place where God is to meet his people. And so when people are coming from all over the land for cleansing and mercy and forgiveness, they show up thinking they're going to meet God and have this experience with him. They show up and it's actually filled with, with, with man's perspective on religion and it's, it's distracting and it's, it's even deceitful at points because they are taking and, and using it as an opportunity to defraud people and exploit their need. And he basically says, how, how dare you do this to my father's market, to my father's house, and basically turn it into a market Instead of it being an environment of prayer and sobriety and rest, this was a joyous thing to come to Jerusalem, to have this opportunity to be with other uh, of, of God's children, to be able to worship. This was, a, this was a glorious thing. They would sing the Psalms of Ascent as they, they, they traveled and journeyed and, and their hearts would be tuned and then all of a sudden they get to to the actual temple, and it's an absolute chaotic mess. The environment, as it's said in Matthew 21, verse 13, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. Jesus' words were accurate because he knew their hearts, and he knew what was taking place in all the the little transactions and the little deals that were being made on the side. Jesus was aware of all this. And he says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And so the contrast here of, of what religion had become, it had become external and materialistic, and Jesus was extremely upset about it. And he expresses his anger. It should be one of holy adoration not noisy commerce. And so this, just as far as application goes, this really helps us understand even uh, in, in our, our opportunity for worship today that God does care how we come into his house and his house is not referring to this building. We've said it over and over. Church is not a building. Church is the people of God. It's the household of God as it tells us in 1 Timothy. When God's people come together to seek him and worship him, they become the household. It's God's family. So yes, I realize this is a different system of worship that was established by God, messed up by man, but we still have the same heart of God that is revealed for this particular context where Jesus said my house is to be a house of prayer and we can certainly make the same applications that God has the, a heart for worship that wants us to, to be focused on the right things. And I think in our day and age, the temptation, the, probably the, the, the connecting point for us as far as application goes, the, the way for us many times to, to resist this type of approach is really to, to think correctly about church, that we are not consumers. Living in the West and, and even American culture, it's easy for us to be consumers because there's something at our fingertips at every point, whether it's food, whether it's recreation, whether it's entertainment, whatever it is. There's always something for us to consume. 
And it's readily available at every point. And so it's, it's easy for us to then, in, in, in regards to our worship and church life, it's easy for us to become consumers where we come to a place of worship and we just want to receive. We want to take and take and take because it's so natural for us. But actually, when we even think about the Old Testament system, it was for them, them to come and give of themselves of their resources to be able to sacrifice. It was for them to present themselves to God to seek Him. And while we're so thankful that we don't live under the system of sacrifice that, that Jesus took care of all that, the same heart of God is still present today that God actually cares how we come to worship Him. And I realize it's difficult in the middle of February, on a dreary Sunday morning, some of you right now, you're even sleeping. I can't see you because the lights are too bright, so it's okay. There's no judgment from this perspective. I probably would be too if I was sitting there because, you know, my voice can be somewhat monotone. And... But we actually probably should resist the temptation to bring worship to such a cheap level. No doubt you had the same temptation that I do. My alarm probably went off a little bit earlier than yours. But you probably had the same temptation. It's like, I don't want to get out of bed today. And maybe you were fighting that, that, that reluctance in your spirit and your flesh all throughout. You're like, hey, you've got to go to church. Where's my coffee? And even coming in. Now hopefully... What God does in his gracious kindness, it's like something happens when God's people get together. Like you can be fighting with your spouse in the car, right? Like it went south, whatever, it was, whatever the reason, right? Whether you're not on time or, I don't know, the kids did something this morning. I won't ask for any raise of hands of how many of you fought on the way to church today. But you can be so full of angst and, and, and really, you know, just you know, very upset, and then you walk in, and I realize sometimes it's easy just to put on a face and show, but the reality is what God does in some of those, he softens hearts. Like you come in, you start to be reminded, okay, there's a bigger picture in life, whatever I was upset about this morning probably isn't as big a deal as I thought it was in that moment. Okay, wow, I need to actually be kind to others. And, and then people start speaking truth into your life. And then you sit in like a class as I did this morning. It was like so fantastic. as just, you know, people being together. And, and God starts to soften your heart. And then you come in and, and you hear the truth as the, the choir sang and the orchestra played. And, and the team prepared us in worship and it's like God reminds us of who he is and his grace. Like worship is something really, really special. And yeah, it's ordinary. He tells us, assemble regularly. And we do it on the first day of the week. That was the pattern of the New Testament. So we follow that pattern. And as God's people, we come together, and no matter how our hearts are, how hot for God or how cold they are, 
We can come into worship and God by his spirit does this amazing thing through his presence and his word and he softens us and he he reminds us of the glory of Jesus Christ. But when we buy into a consumeristic mindset that, you know, this this time's about me. I I like this, and I like this, and and I want this to happen, and this person better talk to me. And we cheapen, we cheapen worship. Now, thankfully, God doesn't just, like, come busting through the doors, you know, like turning tables over and things like that. No, thankfully. But it's the same God who knows every heart here this morning. He knows every negative thought you had about coming to worship today. And I don't think he cares any less. He doesn't change. So I think he's actually pretty in tune and his desires are pretty clear he has designed this activity that we do on a regular basis to do to be pretty special it's designed to meet with him and so we must constantly resist our flesh And strive to keep it God-centered because we want to bring it down to our level and we want to be in the center of things. And we say on a regular basis that we're a God-centered church and what does that mean? It means God's glory is our motivation and our measurement for ministry. Starting from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God all the way through the end to Revelation, it's always about God's glory. Whatever you do, Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, and that includes worship. Of all things, it includes worship. So we want his glory to be displayed in our lives and through our lives. That's the motivation. We get up and do this so God will be glorified through us. And when he's glorified through me, I can have an influence on someone else and they can experience the glory of God and be encouraged and built up and that flows through God's people. And so that is our motivation of why we are here. Not that we can leave here and feel all better about ourselves. Thankfully, there's some byproducts that come and worship and we feel close to people, hopefully, when we leave and we feel refreshed and that's wonderful. But the fundamental reason of why we are here, it's God's glory. And we're only successful. That's how we measure success. Was God glorified from start to finish today? And so we have to continually put our flesh aside our own desires, the temptation to be consumers and seek God and his glory. I think he really cares about worship. And in this conversation, we see his heart. That whenever, in whatever context, and this has been played out through the centuries in a variety of contexts. We have a very different Jewish context in which it's played out here. But it's the same thing. We are here to meet our God. And we are here to worship Him and exalt Him. 
And so this zeal, this quote from Psalm 69 that, that is, is mentioned here by John, that the zeal for my Father's house, it will consume Jesus, and it did. And when he communicated, he communicated clearly his desire is for God's house to be a place of adoration and holiness, a place of true worship. Now, I think the second thing that we have here is just Jesus explaining something that uh, would, would we fully understand on, on this side of the cross. But for them, they, they totally didn't get it. When he said, destroy this temple. In fact, they'll bring this up later at his trial. Jesus said he was going to destroy this temple. It's not what he said. He was talking about himself. And he was predicting what these religious ru- rulers would actually do to him. He said, destroy this temple, and he would build it up again in three days. And he is prophesying, he is explaining what is to come. So the sign that they wanted to see as far as what authority do you have to come in and turn this place upside down, he was actually revealing what that sign would be. There's coming a day when you will put me to death, but I will actually be the victor. I will raise it up. At the time, the disciples didn't even understand because the text says that later, after, the disciples remembered this statement and they believed. So there wasn't total clarity even with those who were following Jesus at this time. Certainly there wasn't any clarity from the religious leaders. Jesus was the one who person who understood the whole thing. But he is dropping some information that's going to be very, very helpful. He's speaking of his own body. And the authority that he has is based on the fact that he is the all-powerful God and he can do whatever he wants and that is going to be displayed when he brings himself back to life. He is the true temple. The temple was a place where sinful people came to get cleansing. And Jesus is saying... I am the temple where sinners will approach a holy God. It's only through me. As he has said elsewhere, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So what these people were trying to accomplish, all these pilgrims coming to Jerusalem to seek and and be a part of the presence of God, Jesus is saying, it's me. It's only through me. And he is declaring, rightfully so, he has ultimate authority and God's wrath will only be satisfied through him. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. And he did. And Revelation tells us in 21-22, John speaking, I saw no temple in the city For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Isn't it nice to live in 2023 where we have a much clearer perspective on all this stuff? Do you think you would have been a disciple that would hung in there after this conversation? I mean, seriously. You hear this guy, you saw him turn water into wine, pretty amazing dude. 
I'm not trying to belittle him in any way. Please, that was probably too cheap of a, a statement. I didn't mean to refer to him in that context. But what my point is, you, you see this guy. He's becoming a teacher in the day. And you follow him to Jerusalem, and he does this. <laughs> like he tears the place apart. And then he makes these statements that you don't understand. Destroy this temple, I'll build it in three days. Who is this guy? Would you have hung with him? We can easily sit here on this side and say, oh yeah, for sure. Not even the disciples fully understood in this moment. But Jesus, with all authority, makes it clear that he is the temple. And he is the pathway to forgiveness. And he is the pathway to God. He's the bridge. So this conversation really teaches us several things that I think are just good reminders for us today. There should be a reverence to our worship There should be a focus on the glory of God. There should be a seriousness about it, a priority. Like, this is really important in our week. It's how God has designed his people to interact with him. And so we value it. My statement this morning was, like, it came from a very serious heart to have a group of people who hung into a church for 38 years That is a rare thing today. Something in the heart is serious about worship. Because a lot happens in 38 years. And we praise God that that he sustains his church and, and we understand there are different seasons. People move and there are times and seasons in people's lives where God brings them to an assembly and then moves them to other places. I, I totally understand that. But when we're a part of an assembly, I think it is very clear that God desires holiness and reverence. And that is a heart issue of every single person who's there. That is not external. This is a heart issue that comes from us thinking correctly about God's desires for these moments when we are together. And I also think this passage gives us a deeper appreciation of Jesus. I think it shows us that that he was patient and kind with people. As it said, the disciples didn't get it. It took uh, until he, he actually died and rose again, that they, they got it. But imagine those three years that Jesus traveled with these guys. He patiently gave them truth, even when sometimes they would doubt him and reject him. He just kept loving them graciously. And you know, there's people all around us that don't believe. There's people who misunderstand who Jesus is. It doesn't negate his authority or his authenticity, but this should encourage us. You know what? We have, we have a lot of information on this side. And Jesus set the example of patience and kindness with people. 
and let the truth do its work. And I think that's a similar approach that we should have. Whether it's those who say, you know what, I don't believe at all, or those who, who, who believe, maybe are struggling, they're not where we want them to be. I think these moments reveal the heart of Jesus, that he was a kind, loving, patient person. You say, as he's turning the tables up to it, I'm talking about in regards to, he, he didn't, with these disciples who didn't fully understand it in this moment, he said, ah, I'm going to get some new folks. No. He invested. He cared. He's a patient, gracious example of how we deal with others. And I think the, the appropriate way to follow is to keep pointing people to Jesus. Keep pointing them to Jesus. Whether it's unbelief or doubt and struggle, keep pointing them to Jesus. He is the ultimate temple. He is the way that we know God. He is God. And he was revealed in the flesh for us in these moments in ordinary life, whether it be a wedding, whether it be a festival, how Jesus interacted and communicated about himself. Remember, he's the word. He's the ultimate communication of the divine message. And in this message, he communicated in this conversation God is to be worshipped carefully with reverence and adoration. And we do that by putting our personal desires aside and really seeking his glory. We're really good at robbing God of his glory. As one author said, we're good glory thieves. We like it to center on man real fast. But as has been communicated through our wonderful Savior today, it is always about Jesus. He is in the center. He is the Lamb. There is no need for a temple today. Praise Jesus. So let's respond appropriately. Let's appreciate him. Let's seek to, to worship him with a heart of purity an adoration that reflects a sincere desire to come to him as he desires. Let's pray as we close this morning. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for making it very clear to us of your desires. And as we make application for our context, would you give us wisdom, Lord? Clearly, you have a desire for how you should be worshipped. And as in this example in the Jewish culture and in ours today, there are many times where because of our sinfulness and our humanity, we get it wrong. The emphasis is on the wrong things. We love externals. And you remind us that we are here to worship you. It should be a house of prayer. It should be a place of adoration. True worship to you, Jesus, the one true God. Jesus, thank you for your example of being zealous about the right things 
Thank you for being the example of being patient and kind with others when they don't always get it. And Lord, as we continue to look to you and listen to your words, would you continue to grow us in your likeness. In your holy and precious name.